Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, so I just wanted to let you know that Christian and I ended up talking about this topic for a really long time. So we decided to split the episode in two, and this is going to be the first half of our discussion. You can tune in again next time to hear the second half. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. And I'm Christian Sager. So our co-host Robert is away this week. He's on vacation. And the two of us thought that this would be a good opportunity to talk about a little side project that we've been working on for... What, like six months now? Longer than that. Are you talking about that uh, breeder reactor we've been working on? Well, that's our side side project. Okay. This one is, is a little bit more on the books. This is the one where we've been looking into DIY forensics. Oh, yeah. So Christian and I, uh, well, mainly Christian, I want to give yeah. you all the credit because it's true, that you, you've had this idea of wanting to produce a video series for How Stuff Works showing how you can do your own forensic science investigations, just like you'd see... Uh, well, I don't want to say just like you'd see on CSI because it turns out all, all that stuff you see is mostly pretty fake garbage. But, yeah. Um, but like a forensic investigator would do at a crime scene. So, so how you can use tools available to you to figure out what happened if, say, there's blood spatter all over a wall or if yeah. there is a fingerprint left on a surface. And so the first one that we did was like a demo because we wanted to like kind of test it as a proof of concept. Right. And we took one of our studios here at How Stuff Works and we covered the walls with paper. Yeah. We got and, a mannequin head and put yeah. some fake blood packets on it. Yeah. And then um we basically had Lauren Vogelbaum from Forward Thinking come in with Thor's hammer Mjolnir, which we just have laying around, yeah. and just pound on this mannequin's head so that the blood would splatter as if it was a person being hit with a real hammer it's to see how the blood would splatter. And we were testing basically the premise that you of how blood splatter analysis works, and there's right. some math to it. So then we subsequently did the stringing, which you've, you've probably seen on these forensic TV shows like CSI, where they string crime scenes. Yeah. Um, and there you're trying to identify the trajectory of the blood that hit to leave the the stain pattern that you find. Yeah, exactly. So you can sort of figure out both uh, where the crime happened and what the like height and uh, I guess like three dimensionally is the best way to explain it. Right. You yeah. can explain where it happened in the room, but also the height of the blow. Yeah. Uh, and so we did it and it, it worked. Um, sort of. Yeah. It, uh, it, it was it, a mess. With all of the complications we have, but it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we definitely weren't as prepared for how difficult it was as I thought. And then we posted some photos to the stuff to blow your mind, social media accounts, and uh, at least one, maybe two people popped up. If you're listening, thank you. Um, they were blood spat, spatter analysis experts and yeah. they gave us some advice. Uh, and we still, we've just been so busy with everything else that we do here. We just haven't been able to get to the rest of it. But the idea was we were going to take this and we were going to extrapolate it out into like a four, maybe five part series that was going to be a locked room murder mystery where each episode, Joe and I tried to solve a crime by doing DIY forensics in the right. room. And we were going to do the blood spatter one. We were going to do paper chromatography. We were talking about dusting for fingerprints with super glue, which is really interesting. Uh, we were going to talk about decomposition of bodies and how do you figure out the time of death. Then we got into looking at some other stuff. We got to bite marks, hair and fiber analysis, stuff like that. And we were like, 
how valid actually is this? I mean, not not just beyond like us doing the DIY version of it with like Ziploc baggies and tweezers here in our studios, but like how actually valid is this? And Josh Clark from Stuff You Should Know started talking to us about it. And he was like, you know, there's a lot of really bad pseudoscience in this. And he sent us a great article. This is something that Josh and I had talked about several times before, actually. It's sort of a running conversation we have about uh, problems that keep emerging in forensic science. Absolutely, yeah. So he pointed this out to us, and we thought, you know what? Uh, why don't we do an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind about this so we can sort of get our thoughts clear, really do a deep dive on the research, and then maybe one day we'll return to this video series and we'll make sure that the stuff that we're doing, first of all, is valid, but that second of all, that we can... What I'm hoping to do with it is also somehow within this locked room narrative that we're going to construct, also tell the audience, like, you can't rely on hair evidence, for instance, right? Or uh, bite marks, because there's a lot of subjectivity to how that's done right now. So that's what we're here to talk to you about today is the pseudoscience and the sort of false interpretations. And there's a, there's just a lot of problems with forensic science. And I think people within the field would, would acknowledge that as well. Yeah, and it certainly has been uh, openly acknowledged. So one resource that we're going to be referencing throughout this episode is this massive compilation research document put together by the National Research Council and published in 2009 called Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States. And this was Put together uh, out of a uh, out of a commission, I think, uh, funded by Congress yep. to look at the state of forensic science in the United States, and and take a scientific, analytical, critical approach to it to say how well are we using forensic science in our courts? Like how well, uh, how scientifically established are the methods that are being used? How often do they get the right answer? As far as we can tell, yeah, because it has become more and more clear that lots of traditional methods used in forensic science analysis, the kinds of science we would use to analyze a crime scene, to identify a suspect, to demonstrate the guilt of a suspect, yeah. uh, etc., uh, these things are in many cases full of flaws. And I, I've seen it alleged that really uh, nuclear DNA analysis is about the only forensic science discipline in, u- used in U.S. courts that isn't thoroughly riddled with problems. Actually, and we'll talk about it in this episode, too. There and are even problems. it can be vulnerable. Yeah, but it I is, think it's generally considered the best. It is considered the best. Yeah, but there are issues with it as well. Um, so I got a question for you. Have you ever served on a jury before? No, I haven't. I've I've had uh you know jury selection days, but I've never yeah. I've never been picked for a jury. So a couple of years ago I was picked for a jury and I don't know how this happened, but somehow I ended up being the foreman. And uh <laughs> little do they know what power they put in the hands of this uh this doom purveyor. It was a real weird case and I won't take you all down the the long road of it, but I will say, you know, one of the people that came in, it was a it was a cocaine a possession and distribution case, but also a firearm possession case for a felon who was not supposed to be carrying firearms. Right. Um, the, they had a cocaine expert come in from their forensics lab. And, you know, like with any rhetorical position, especially in the courtroom, I mean, this is where like a lot of the, the Greek terminology for, for rhetoric came from. They first started off by presenting the ethos, the quality of the character of this woman. She right. they gave us her uh, 
how many years that she'd been working in the lab and in the field and what her degrees were and what her training was and how many cases that she'd looked at and all of that stuff to sort of establish up front. This is a person you should believe. Right. Yeah. And that's pretty much standard practice when you're in a courtroom and somebody who's a science expert comes or a forensics expert comes to testify about a case. Mm -hmm. But what you don't know is necessarily like the actual field itself, how much solidity there is to the discipline. Yeah. So imagine you are on a jury and it is 1835 or so. Okay. So you are not the scientifically literate person you are today. You are maybe a farmer sure. who has been called in for jury duty and it's a murder trial. And the prosecution brings on an expert witness to testify to the guilt of the defendant. And the expert witness who comes on says, look, here is a map of the different organs on the human skull. And uh, as you will see in this uh, sketch of the defendant's head, they have an extremely pronounced organ of murdering. <laughs> and that's a bump that's right here on this part of the head. And okay. through the principles of phrenology, we can demonstrate that this person is by nature a murderer and will kill again if released. Huh. Now. We know that that sounds like complete bunk. Man, wouldn't life be super easy if we could just touch everybody's heads and figure out if they're murderers? It would be much easier. It yeah. would also give you more excuses when you're touching to touch people's, people's heads, heads. And, and, <laughs> and people are saying, why are you doing why that? Why are you doing it? Just yeah. checking. Just want to make sure. I'm make sure I'm safe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't want to be in the presence of somebody with a pronounced organ of destructiveness. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, we all know today phrenology is nonsense, but. Back then, a lot of people would not have had the knowledge to do that. And it's not because they were stupid. They they just right. didn't know. Well, it was probably presented in much the same way. Right? Yeah. Here's this, this, this learned gentleman gets up in front yeah. of you and says, I am an expert and all phrenologists agree. Um, so in that case, if if the judge has decided that this is admissible testimony and you're on the jury, how would you know to question it? Yeah. Right. And then even if you're the judge, the judge might know. Not right. Exactly. It. It's not a qualification to be a judge to also have a science degree. Exactly. Uh, now, we are going to talk, believe it or not, about a real case where somebody tried to use phrenology in the courtroom in the 1800s. But we'll get to that actual historical example in a bit. Yeah. First, we should back up, I think, and, and look a little bit more generally at uh, a sort of top down view of what are some of the problems with forensic science as it's used, especially in U.S. courts today. But this is going to apply to a lot of courts around the world in, in sure. the general sense. Yeah. And, and like, as usual, because we're Americans and we're here in the U.S., a lot of our research is focused here. Yeah. But um, the best uh, resource that I was able to find came from Popular Mechanics, and they had a really good article on the myths of CSI. And they began by establishing that forensic science as we know it was mostly created by police, not mm -hmm. by scientists. And it's based more on common sense rather than scientific practice. And right? we all know what common sense is. Common sense is the reasoning faculty that tells you that the earth does not move and is flat. Yeah, B.O.B. I'm, I'm down with B.O.B. <laughs> well, I mean, those things are that common sense. That's the whitest thing I've ever said on this show. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, so common sense, as we know from all kinds of fields of science, very often betrays us. Common sense is right. useful for getting your average stuff done day to day, but it is not good for, for deducing truths that are obscure. Yeah, right. So this Popular Mechanics article goes in depth and it says, okay, 
and it, and it points out DNA testing right off the bat. And they said DNA testing is, is really good. And it's made it possible for us to reexamine all this other biological evidence that we've taken from past trials so that more than 200 people, this is in the U.S., have had their convictions overturned because the DNA analysis refutes the other biological evidence that was used in the case. Mm-hmm. 50% of these cases involved bad forensic analysis contributing to their imprisonment. And they refer to this as the CSI effect. So I've heard of this. Keep this bringing is, up the show. Yeah, the CSI effect, uh, as I've come to, come to understand, let me know if th- this is in line with what they're saying. As I understand it, it's where juries tend to expect to encounter scientific style evidence presented in the courts or especially DNA evidence. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a perpetuation of the media versions of the forensic examiner's Solving difficult cases with science and cutting edge tech, right? Like, so when you think of CSI and you think of like, wow, this, this is how old I am. Like David Caruso throwing on his sunglasses and whipping back his red hair. And then there's like CGI zooming in on a dead body and like uh-huh. explanation, exposition about like how forensics works. That's what they're expecting, right? They're expecting some David Caruso slick type to show up and explain this to them. There's an argument, though, that this is a misconception that absolutely sways jurors before they're really even in the courtroom. Yeah. Um, like it leads to the misperception that generally the, uh, the, the methods leading to the prosecution, identification and prosecution of a defendant are very scientific in nature. Not only that, but that they, that all cases will have some kind of scientific, quote unquote, scientific evidence, uh, engaged or as evidence right for them to review yeah so but what's actually going on is a little bit more difficult like like all things in the real world uh america's forensics labs are totally overburdened and understaffed and a 2005 study by the department of justice found that the average lab has a backlog of 401 requests so that's why like for instance that case that i was the foreman on i think it happened like a year, year and a half after they actually arrested the guy. Because oh, they were waiting on evidence. Yeah, it took forever for them to actually get to the evidence and to like, in this case, they were looking at the cocaine that was found on his person right. to see what percentage of it was pure cocaine. Okay. Um, so this isn't even getting into all of the state, city, and now federal forensic departments that have been scandalized by mishandling evidence or just straight up committing fraud. Uh, so, I mean, even outside of the science angle that we're talking about, there's uh, the pseudoscience angle we're talking about. Right. There's the mishandling of evidence, which makes the science bad. Yeah. And then there's just people committing fraud. Right. Which is, well, I mean, you know, unethical. Uh, I guess you could encounter fraud in any situation, like even in sure. a uh, even in a field where all of the established methodology is well vetted, scientifically valid methodology you could yeah. still have somebody falsify data yeah you know somebody so, who has like the the quote-unquote quality of character to testify in a courtroom yeah but whatever somebody yeah somebody got to them but uh other than just telling people not to be liars uh there's yeah. really not as much to do about that so i think we're probably not going to focus as much on fraud no, today but it's just important to know that it's out there right yeah. especially like next time one of you is in the jury box you know just consider these things that we're talking about today uh, so the argument basically goes like this. The forensics science field, it has a foundation that's very shaky and very subjective. In fact, the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors says 
Look, there's no advanced degree that's required to have a career in forensics. Some people do, yeah. but it's not and required. I think it varies field to field because there will yeah. be, uh, for example, like a, maybe like boards or, or licensing organizations yeah. that work in different fields and they have different requirements. Sure, yeah, especially probably based state to state, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, one question I have, and let's, I don't want you, I mean, you can answer it right now or we can think about it and come back to it at the end of the episode, but should it be? Should they be required to have an advanced degree? Uh, well, I mean, I think that's going to vary case to case. Again, I, I think, I think methodology is more important than credentialing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like well, you can have somebody with a high school education and if they are rigorously forced to follow certain methodologies. Sure. Uh, I, I would probably be okay You'd with that. still believe it. Yeah. yeah. And, or computer automated systems. Yeah. That are forced to follow those rigorous uh, methodologies, too, which is something that people are talking about. So it's been argued that the body of research behind forensic science is just totally incomplete. The methodologies aren't precise. Like I said, there's lying and fraud. Today, we're mainly going to concentrate, though, on whether the science itself adds up so that you can take valid conclusions from it and right. use it as evidence in a courtroom. Yeah. Right? Pseudoscience, yeah. problems in the scientific method. Yeah. We've had chemists who have faked results and gone to prison for drug convictions. There's been sloppy work that's been done in thousands of cases related to St. Paul, Minnesota, Detroit, Michigan, Philadelphia, North Carolina, Houston, and more. I mean, this is like, this is everywhere. But, uh, in 2005, this is, this is the, what led to the paper that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Congress commissioned the National Academy of Science to examine the state of forensics in the U.S., in U.S. law enforcement. And they, this group found in 2009 that there were, quote, serious deficiencies in mm-hmm. the nation's forensic science system. And they advocated for extensive reform. And they said, apart from DNA, and remember, we're going to come back to DNA later. Yeah. There is no single forensic discipline that has been proven with a degree of certainty to be able to match a piece of evidence to a suspect. Now, that brings up an important thing that I think may come up again in this episode, which is that some fields as practiced may be better able to sometimes exclude the possibility of of a defendant being guilty rather than matching, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, sure, like, sure. Uh, one example I know we'll talk about later is bite marks. Yeah, and that that's something I've seen pointed out is that while it might be hard to say, OK, this bite mark identifies that this truly is the defendant. Yeah, you could more easily say this makes it clear that this bite mark was not left by the defendant. Yeah, it's complicated. Right. And it's uh, it, it it brings me back as many of our episodes do episodes do lately to uh, the wicked problems that Robert and I talked about earlier this year that just. What's going on with forensics in the justice system in general is a wicked problem. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be solved with one answer, right? No. But but uh, it's worth looking at. Well, I mean, one thing we can take comfort in is that uh, th- uh, this big 2009 report is very extensive. And uh, I, I hope that this already has, in some cases, led to some initiated reforms and it yeah. will help lead to continued reforms in the future. So it's not like nobody recognizes this problem and right. nobody's doing anything about it. Yeah, I suspect that there are a lot of people who are working very hard right now. You may even be listening to the show. We're like, hey, you know, we're we're doing our best over here. Yeah. So we get that. But but it's also important to sort of walk through the process and figure it out. Uh, it, the worst implication yeah. of this, though, Joe, is like this is and, and this is extrapolating it out to uh, one reason why a lot of people care about this now is because it's in our pop culture. Right. Serial, the biggest podcast out there, uh, making a murderer on Netflix, all of, all of which touch upon these things. 
it, there's an implication that if the forensic science is wrong, that there are innocent people who are jailed for crimes they didn't commit. And subsequently, there are guilty criminals out there who are still roaming free. Too. Yeah. So um, what, we're going to talk about this group a lot as well. The Innocence Project found that when prisoners were exonerated by DNA, the real perpetrators were identified in half of those cases. Mm-hmm. And in all but one, the real perpetrators continued to commit crimes, serious crimes, after the innocent person went to jail. Yeah, so the Innocence Project, if you haven't heard of it, it's an advocacy organization. So uh, it, it does, you might say, probably have an axe to grind in this issue. Sure, but but yeah. it's also, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it is abundantly clear that that many innocent people have been convicted of crimes they didn't commit. Many guilty people have been let go on the basis of bad forensic evidence yeah. or uh, or have been let go simply because somebody else is made to cop for the crime that they committed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and these people, so, so somebody who actually did a murder is out roaming the streets because somebody else is in prison for it. Yeah, and that's just one disappointing but two terrifying, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and so another part of the problem, and I, I don't think we're going to have a lot of time to dive deep into this today, but it's also important to remember that the legal sciences don't get as much federal funding as other disciplines when it comes to research like this. Mm-hmm. So subsequently, there aren't as many examples of statistically defensible research that these forensics ex- ex- forensic examiners can rely upon, that they can go back to and and that they have a depth of research in their field, yeah. right? Uh, and so one argument is we should fund them more and two, they should be broken out into their own division. They shouldn't be beholden to police and prosecutors because right now most forensic scientists work under the police and under prosecutors. Yeah. Um, which is obviously going to throw a bias into their work. Uh, yeah, th- that's another thing that is, uh, that is addressed by that big 2009 document is, is experimenter bias. I mean, th- this is a problem that's also different in some sense from methodologies. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, actually, I guess you could say it's part of methodology because when you design an experiment in science, you part of your methodology is to try to remove bias, for example, by blinding or experiment or blinding. Mm-hmm, you know, the people mm-hmm. carrying out the research shouldn't be aware. Let's of, explain what that means. Yeah. Like, you're not blinding a human being. Right. Experiment or blinding, for example, is, uh, you know, if you want to test whether a, uh, a certain type of artificial sweetener causes cancer yeah. uh, when you're conducting the experiment ideally the person performing the experiment shouldn't know what the hypothesis is yeah. shouldn't know what uh, the samples they're using are they should be sort of uh, unlabeled and uh, yeah. identified later by like numbers that can be matched up so so that the uh, if the experimenter has a certain way that they maybe even unconsciously want things to go in the experiment mm-hmm. that can't affect it because yeah. they don't know what What's going yeah. on and what's expected. There's no actual variables that they could unconsciously put into the uh, into the test. Right. Yeah. But in many cases in forensic science, that's not necessarily how it's practiced. A lot of times the the forensic investigator in certain scenarios might know what the hypothesis is. And right. it's that this certain person is guilty and here's what they did. Mm-hmm. But again, that's one that varies from field to field. So we can't say that that's a problem across the board. Yeah. So like I'm thinking like an example here, although I'm not, I don't want to accuse the woman in the case that I was uh, a part of, of, of pseudoscience in any way. I have no idea one way or the other, but right. her job was to prove that the cocaine that was given to her had a certain percentage of pure cocaine in it so that this man could be charged for distribution. There's like 
on the law, it has to be a particular percentage so that it's legally enforceable. Mm. Um, you know, rather than it being like, I don't know, salt. I don't know what people mix in with their cocaine nowadays. Sorry, guys. Not on the street <laughs> as much as I used to be. Non-dairy creamer. <laughs> yeah, non-dairy creamer and salt, apparently. Powdered. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she knew what her job was going into yeah. it when she was measuring it, right? Uh, so, yeah, you mentioned that word pseudoscience. And I, I guess we should get into that a little bit uh it's something that comes up on this show fairly often. We talk about pseudoscience, but what what is pseudoscience for for those who are you may have heard the term, but you're not clear exactly what it is. You're you're aware that it's maybe just false information or something. But I think that in this case, it's very important to emphasize the specific definition of it, because pseudoscience uh, is a standard dictionary definition I found is a collection of beliefs or practices mistakenly regarded as being based on the scientific method. Mm-hmm. So um, the scientific method with reference to forensic science uh, as defined explicitly in that big 2009 uh National Research Council report is uh, quote hypothesis generation and testing so you've got a hypothesis going in sure falsifiability and replication so there are ways that you could show your knowledge is not true yeah. and testing more than once by different people to verify the results you get and then peer review of scientific publications so now, testing your findings against other experts in your field to see what they think and if they can criticize your method now, other than the peer-reviewed aspect, this is pretty much what we learn in science class in high school. Yeah. Right? Like well, depending get, on, yeah. <laughs> when you get your little research lab book and you're filling out all your stuff for the experiments that you perform in class and such like that, this is what they're teaching us, the yeah. importance of that. The peer review stuff comes later when you're in, I guess, higher education. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it shouldn't be that hard. You're right. Uh, but in a lot of cases that this is exactly what they have found, many forensic fields or certain forensic investigators don't always practice. Sure. Or that their techniques don't reflect this or the rules of analysis they use don't necessarily reflect this. They're, they're not based on uh, well replicated, falsifiable scientific tests. They're more just kind of like knowledge, general wisdom, yeah. folk wisdom about eh, here's what you'd expect to see here. So kind of like. So I like to think about the, uh, a scene that I love from TV, but this is total pseudoscience, all right? But it's also like street cops, yeah. right? The Wire, uh-huh. the, the infamous F-word scene in The Wire, you know uh-huh. what I'm talking about, right? Where Bunk and McNulty are in the kitchen, and they're trying to figure out how a woman was shot through a window in the kitchen. And so they're basically measuring with pens and like, I don't even know if they they have a measuring tape in that scene or not. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? And they're measuring like what the trajectory of the bullet might have been, what angle the guy might have been shooting from, where she was shot, where the bullet might have been lodged in the refrigerator door, all this stuff. Yeah. In the meantime, while they're swearing a bunch, which is funny for us as the audience. But that's not science. Well, I mean, that's just them. They've got some common sense. Yeah. And yeah, they've, they've been on the job. They've seen enough homicides and mm-hmm. they have a bit of an idea on how to explore that scene. But that's not something that you necessarily would submit to the courtroom. Right. I mean, I can I can look at that scene and say, I don't know. It seems like they're reasonable in, in the conclusions they're drawing. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, one problem there is, uh, for example, the lack of 
quantitative evidence. Yeah. This is something that's often important in science is trying to find a way to represent your findings with numbers. So it, it takes the gut feeling out of it. Right. So instead of saying, yeah, that bullet hole looks like it came from there. Instead, what you should be doing is putting a straight object through it and measuring with a protractor exactly what the angle is. Right. So that it takes your gut feeling out of it. You have a specific number that has been explicitly measured. Now, I think if David Simon, creator of The Wire, were here with us, he would argue that one of the points of that scene also is that because the Baltimore Police Department is so horrifically underfunded, this is how these police have to go about doing their jobs because they don't have protractors or forensics teams that can come in and do all that stuff for them. Right. So one important point I think that uh, we should make is that pseudoscience isn't just any false knowledge or bad epistemology. It's a specific type of thing. Like if a prosecutor on a case, you're on a jury and a prosecutor brings in a tarot card reader <laughs> uh, to turn some cards to show you show you exactly how guilty, uh, you know, this guy is of attacking somebody with a folding chair. Yeah, that would be a bad evidential standard. But I don't I think don't know, I, I wouldn't. If the tower came up. I'd be real worried. Uh huh. I wouldn't call it pseudoscience because it's yeah. not trying to dress itself in the wardrobe of science. Yeah. yeah. And th- that's exactly what is so pernicious about some of these flawed forensic science methods. They take on the credibility of the scientific method without actually practicing the method in every case. Yeah, and depending on how charismatic or rhetorically qualified a a defense or prosecutor uh, could be, you know, it's very easy to convince a jury that somebody's an expert in something that they just simply don't understand, you know. So that's also worth considering. Yeah. Um. All right, I want to bring up one thing here that references another old episode of ours, too, okay. which is um, Robert and I did that episode earlier this year about cargo cult science. Okay. And or cargo cultism. And then we also talked about cargo cult science within Is that it. a concept from Feynman? Uh, yeah, he was he's semi involved in that. Yeah. 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 Uh, in fact, we told a really fun story. Go back and listen to the episode, everybody. But told a fun story about Feynman hanging out in a bathtub while people were doing reflexology on each other. Uh, anyways, Feynman always hanging yeah. out in bathtubs. Yeah, exactly. Hot tub, I guess more than bathtub. Right. Um, but so this also, it made me think of what Robert and I talked about as the church of science, quote unquote, in that episode yeah. too, that there is, there is a, an idea of science as being almost like a deity nowadays, right? That the, that true knowledge and true, um, uh, ways to judge how the world works can come from science rather than the old way that we thought it did, which, you know, generally was from religion or mythology. Uh, and this is an example of where quote unquote science is a false god. Uh, you mean like the, the people who treat science sort of as dogmas rather yeah. than as a method? Exactly. Uh, yeah. When people say, I hate when I hear this, when people say, quote, science says. Yeah, yeah. That's one yeah. of my least favorite phrases. Science doesn't say anything. Science is a tool. It's not a, it's not a, a, a deity speaking pronouncements to you. And one of the people, one of the things scientifically literate people will know is that, um, you know, scientific results are tentative. You, you learn totally. something yeah. through science, but then there might be new studies Could coming change. out next year that say, actually, those previous studies were flawed. And here's the, the better answer. Yeah, I guess just my general point is that, like, it's important to realize that this is fallible. Yeah. And that 
you should apply critical thinking to this yeah. when it's when it's put in front of you as matter of fact. Right. Knowledge that is uh, cloaked in the garments of science ain't necessarily so just because it's wearing those clothes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, OK, I want to bring this back, though, because I don't want to make it seem like we're just totally bashing forensic science and like it's all bad. No, it's all no, good, no. Right? Uh, we've what got we're plenty saying of good stuff is to say. put your critical lenses on. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, there are examples of well-researched science being used in forensics. In fact, chromatography, which was one of the things we were going to do for the um, we were going to do paper chromatography for our little DIY uh, lab experiment. It's a method for separating complex mixtures, and it allows examiners to identify bodily fluids for drug cases. And for the most part, it's seen as being well-researched and and backed up. Yeah. Uh, the other one, which we mentioned, is DNA analysis, which has set a new scientific standard. But it, you also have to remember that, quote, good science takes time, right? Yeah. So you can't just, like, uh, whip up DNA evidence, like, you know, in a flash. Literally, the TV show The Flash, I don't know if you know this, the the character, the flash is a forensic scientist. And so whenever he's like, you know, got work to do, he just super quickly like does it all like in like oh, 30 boy. seconds or whatever. So it's, that's not a good example. Wait, does he make the machines work faster? No, he just runs around really quickly and like shakes like, <laughs> like, uh, like little pipettes and stuff or test tubes really quickly. Oh, the machines the work faster because he is the machine. He's the machine. So he yeah. becomes a centrifuge or something like that. Yeah. As much as I love the flash. Uh, both TV show and just as a character, it's like the worst example of what should happen in forensic science. Okay. Um, anyways, the DNA thing, it took 30 years from the discovery of the double helix structure before it could actually be used to confirm a positive identification of an individual. Now it's broadly accepted and quantifiable, right? But it took a long time. In fact, the most advanced analysis has a one in more than a quadrillion chance of a random match of two strangers' DNA. So that seems fairly reliable, yeah? Yeah. Yet, DNA only constitutes less than 10% of the caseload in U.S. crime labs. Right. So that's important to remember as well. What we really need is the rest of forensics to be just as rigorous and just as statistically grounded. Yes. Uh, and one thing I do want to say, picking up on what you said a minute ago about how we're not trying to trash all these fields, is yeah. that I would say that I, I think any field can be pursued in a scientific way. So if we say something about uh, major flaws in uh, bite matching or some, or in mm-hmm. fire analysis, that's mm-hmm. not to say that uh, forensic odontology, the study of, you know, dentistry yeah. in, in, in crime cases, or that fire analysis are not legitimate fields of study. There are yeah. totally legitimate ways to study these, and there are lots of great scientists who do exactly that. The problem is that as practiced in many uh in many court cases and forensic investigations it's full of bad methodologies or unverified knowledge yeah and i think you know that csi effect that we were talking about earlier too is perpetuated by by way more than just like the sort of um police procedurals like csi that we're used to i mean like i just mentioned the flash that's not really a cop show and yet like it throws in a dose of that kind of stuff in there. I'm yeah. also thinking of like a, a great TV show, Sherlock, but it relies on like lots of like examples of Sherlock Holmes conducting his own like at home forensic test. Have you ever seen this show before? Like, yeah, I've seen Sherlock. There's one where like he's just like beating a corpse with like a horse whip or something like that just to, yeah. just to see like what, how long it takes bruises to form on a corpse. Right. And it's like, okay, like I get it. 
that that's an interesting like way narratively to show us that he's conducting research and everything, but also like, what, what, oh, but how, sure, how grounded. Sherlock, it's funny that Sherlock is often used as a uh, as a you know great uh, symbol of scientific investigation because he uses deeply unscientific methods yeah. a lot of the time. Sherlock Holmes will you know look at a few facts about you and make deductions, right? That's what yeah. he does: science of deduction. Say, well, your watch is turned back to this time, which makes me know that you were in this country in this time zone. You know, that's not scientific. That's yeah. just making an assumption. But we love it. We eat it up, right? Like as an audience, that's great fun because it, yeah. it makes the world a lot simpler than it actually is and it man like of course like i would love it if like i could be sherlock holmes and just solve every problem by just like kind of very quickly looking around the room and knowing everything that's going on right but it's not realistic it's a fun story but in terms of like people's lives or whether or not there are guilty perpetrators out there running around it's not really how things work Okay, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, evidence standards for scientific evidence in U.S. courts and then a bunch of specific examples of forensic science disciplines and what some problems with them might be, including uh, the aforementioned case of phrenology. Okay, we're back. So, Joe, tell me and the audience, what is the Fry test and how, how? why is it pertinent to this forensic research that we're talking about here. Well, this comes up in a lot of discussions of forensic science because this has been the legal standard for the admissibility of scientific evidence in U.S. courts for a long time. Now, there are okay. other standards uh, that have in some ways superseded it, but this was sort of the original one. So the Fry standard essentially determines that for scientific evidence to be admissible in the court, it has to be, quote, generally accepted by experts in the field in which it belongs. Okay. So Fry came out of a murder trial in 1923 in which the defendant tried to demonstrate his innocence by using a lie detector test to measure systolic blood pressure. Okay. So this is an early lie detector test, and and this guy uh, is going to say, look, you know, I didn't do it, and here's a machine that shows I'm telling the truth when I say that I didn't do it. Yeah, you you know what? I think this is before the polygraph, because William Marston invented that, and... He is also the co-creator of Wonder Woman. The fun things that Christian Sager knows in his little weird brain. Uh, the lasso of truth. Yeah, right? exactly. And that didn't happen until the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, that's a whole other uh, field of, of forensic pseudoscience that yeah. uh, that we could talk about. But so in this case, the court rejected this evidence, writing, quote, just when a scientific principle or discovery crosses the line between the experimental and demonstrable stages, it's difficult to define. Somewhere in this twilight zone, the evidential force of the principle must be recognized. And while courts will go a long way in admitting expert testimony deduced from a well-recognized scientific principle or discovery, the thing from which the deduction is made must be sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field in which it belongs. And that's where this general acceptance doctrine comes from. Got it. Okay. So lie detector tests not generally accepted by the relevant scientific fields then or now, really. And yet we still see them in pop culture all the time. Right. And uh, even if they were mostly accurate, they're not legitimate scientific evidence to use in a court. Uh, but even this is not foolproof. De- 
depending on how it's applied and interpreted. For example, what if a whole field is just rotten to the core with pseudoscience? Mm. Um, so again, uh, it might not come as a surprise, but most phrenologists consider phrenology a legitimate science. Yeah, of course they would. Uh, and so if oh you don't, boy, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. I see the next line coming up. I'm going, I'm waiting for the emails to come in. Right. Most people who own orgone energy accumulators probably think Wilhelm Reich is not pseudoscience. Yeah, absolutely. So those of you who, who are longtime listeners may know earlier in the year, Joe and I did an episode on Wilhelm Reich and orgone accumulation and cloud busting. Yeah. And we received some nasty emails from people who are, uh, Deep followers of Reich's belief. Yeah, they, they were not happy that we did not uh, see the genius in his method. Yeah, and I, I, I like to feel like we did a fair uh, treatment of that topic, but yeah, but they were upset. Yeah, well, you know, we do our best, but uh, but I don't know. I still we don't, also call them as we see them. <laughs> I don't think the orgone accumulator has much going on for it. Yeah, and uh, neither do I. And. I'm the one who owns VHS tapes and books by that guy and have stayed at his estate. Uh, so in these cases, Wilhelm Reich phrenology, it's obvious to us what's wrong because we're well aware of the, the, these fields and their faults. Yeah. Uh, but what about in obscure sciences? You know, things that are not popularly known to be, uh, pseudoscience where an entire field could just be riddled with problems and mm. nobody on the outside would know. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1975, the federal rules of evidence were established, and this brought in Rule 702, which is relevant to this. And it reads, quote, if scientific, technical or other specialized knowledge will assist the trier of fact to understand the evidence or to determine a fact in issue, a witness qualified as an expert by knowledge, skill, experience, training or education may testify thereto in the form of an opinion or otherwise. So this seems to massively, just on the face of it, this looks like it massively relaxes the standard. Yeah. Um, and, and this led to much argument, lots of back and forth between legal scholars, like does this embrace the Fry standard or does it reject and replace it? And the, the, there were many fierce arguments, but eventually Fry was superseded by the Daubert standard in many okay. courts. So okay. the, the Daubert standard is much more complex and it says, um, Essentially, the, the qualifications for the admissibility of scientific evidence in the courts are whether you can test the theory. That's an important thing. Sure. Yeah. Like it shouldn't be just unfalsifiable knowledge that there's no way you could show if it was wrong. Yeah. Second, whether it has been subjected to peer review and publication. That's another important one. Mm. Uh, what its known potential error rates are. Ah, uh, yeah. So, that's important. You know, yeah. you could have a totally valid field that has a known pretty high error rate. I mean, yeah. it could still be valid as long as you acknowledge what the known error rate is. Yeah. And acknowledge that to the jury. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, the the existence and maintenance of standards controlling its operation. Right. So you've got to have uh, uh, systems in place to, to make sure everybody's doing it right. And uh, and then again, whether it is generally accepted among the scientific community. OK. So who, where, where'd this come from? Well, this is Daubert guy. Yeah. Uh, Daubert was established in a 1993 case in which the plaintiffs were attempting to show that a drug called Bindectin had caused birth defects in their children. Okay. And, uh, and it clarified this rift between Fry and Rule 702, saying that 702 as enforced should have all those qualities I just mentioned. Okay. Um, 
but also that that 2009 National Research uh, Council uh, paper. Yeah, that's paper, like the, the big. Document. That's like the big daddy source that we yeah. keep coming back to over if, and over. If you want to know everything about this, yeah. uh, you you should go read that. But document. It's also it's very big. It's warning. Like, it's huge. It's like 350 intense. pages. Yeah. But, um, in that they write that, quote, the court also emphasized that in considering the admissibility of evidence, trial judges should focus solely on experts' principles and methodology and not on the conclusions they generate. And that mm-hmm. seems that seems absolutely crucial and correct to me. What should be important is the method they use, not what they end up saying. Right. Yeah. And that's still, I would say, or at least just from my experience, not exactly the case. Yeah. You know, but I. The 2009 document says that. I mean, it's been seven years since then, so hopefully it's better. But I think my that case that I worked on was probably a couple of years after this. Yeah, but a- another thing that this uh, this indicates is that the, the court essentially placed faith in the system by saying, look, we've got an adversarial system. Mm-hmm. So you have prosecution and you have defense. You have plaintiff and you have defense. Since there are two sides... We can be sort of generous in what kind of scientific evidence we accept, because if the defense doesn't like the prosecutor's expert witness, they can call in their own expert witness. Yeah. Uh, and true. so the, the court wrote, quote, vigorous cross-examination, presentation of contrary evidence and careful instruction on the burden of proof are the traditional and appropriate means of attacking shaky but admissible evidence. So that essentially means it's not. The court, or rather, yeah. it's not the judge's responsibility. Uh, it's this, it's on the responsibility of the prosecution and the defense to argue rhetorically yes. against the science. Yeah. So the judge might have the ability to rule out a phrenologist giving yeah. evidence, but it, in a case where that's not as clear as phrenology, but just where the science appears legitimate, but might be shaky. Yeah. Uh, it's incumbent that, upon the lawyers. Right. That we'll let it in and we'll see if the other side has something to say about that. All right. So phrenology. You've been you've been teasing around phrenology. I know you've been wanting to tell this story all episode. Okay, so I'm going to take you back more than 150 years. Uh, I'm going to take you to 1834. Okay, in the United States in the state of Maine. Ah, yes, where uh, up where Wilhelm Wright it was is. doing it's his where, thing. It's where well, he wasn't doing it in 1834, but yeah, right. Uh, this unconnected er, early Rangeley, Maine. Yes, uh, yeah. this is uh, well, not Rangeley. This isn't but, in Rangeley. Uh, unconnected to Wilhelm Wright in Maine in 1834, a nine-year-old boy named Major Mitchell was facing trial for a serious violent offense. He was okay. charged with assaulting and maiming another boy, uh, an eight-year-old schoolmate named David Crawford. Okay. And according to the allegations, Major Mitchell had lured Crawford into an empty field with the intention of whipping him and killing him. Uh, Crawford had called Mitchell names like a hog, a fool, and a stealer. Mm. And uh, then Mitchell began to punch Crawford until an adult neighbor came by and separated them. Later, Mitchell found Crawford walking along a road and forced him into some nearby woods. There, Mitchell began torturing Crawford. He uh, supposedly, according to the allegations, he filled his mouth with grass, stripped his clothes off, tied him up, beat him with sticks, tried to drown him in a stream, uh, including damming the stream to make the water deeper to make it easier to drown him, and partially castrated him with a piece of rusty Whoa. tin. Oh, yeah. okay. And event- this is what happens so this when is- you name 
name your child Major. This is messed up. This is not, uh, yeah, not a happy circumstance. Yeah. That's uh, a joke, by the way. There's no evidence that naming your child Major right. will scientifically lead to them being a scumbag. Uh, but eventually, but this is a nine-year-old kid. This is yeah, I something mean, weird's going on here. This would be extremely disturbing if an adult did this to another adult. But this yeah. is a kid doing this to another kid. This is just so messed up. And yeah. um, so eventually Mitchell let Crawford go. Mm-hmm. And Mitchell's legal defense was taken up voluntarily by this Portland lawyer named John Neal. Now, Neal didn't just do this out of, like, pity or kindness. Neal happened to be a proponent of the budding science, science in quotes there, of phrenology. So... uh for for the audience out there, it, this is my imagination of phrenology at the time. I have an inkwell at home uh-huh. that is a bust of a head, and it has all the phrenology, you know, the, the stereotypical, right. like, phrenology drawings of, like, which part of the head does which, and right. it contains which emotions. Right? Yeah. So those of you out there who are wondering, what is this phrenology they keep talking about? Think of those, like, those illustrations of, like, a profile of a head, and it's, like, carved up kind of like... Kind of like, uh, those like depictions of like what parts of a pig are good to eat. Right? right. Yeah. 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 And it shows like, okay, in this part, this is where anger is. And in this part, this is where compassion is. Right? Oh yeah. Stuff yeah. Like that. It's great. So, uh, it's not great. It's awful, but it's great. <laughs> it's great fun to look at yeah. now. So phrenology might in a primitive way be considered a predecessor to neuroscience in that it linked mental faculties and personality traits to the physical makeup of the brain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, who you are is a product of your brain. That's not a bad starting place for, for science, but, uh, from there it sort of becomes the bodybuilder bro science of the brain. Uh, so you know how when you lift heavy weights, use certain muscles, those muscles no. get bigger over time? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> at least in theory. <laughs> okay. At least in theory. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so you can often tell how strong a certain part of a person's body is by looking at how big the muscles there are. Okay. Well, for knowledge, sort of takes the same principle to the brain. Yeah. It posited that the brain is covered in these topographical regions, quote, uh, organs, organs, right, mm-hmm. that are responsible for particular aspects of personality or behavior. So if you had a lump or a raised contour on the part of your head that phrenologists label, labeled the organ of hope okay. or the organ of secretiveness, those personality tra- traits would be super pronounced in you. Uh, so if one of these guys, uh, you know, pulled the let me take you to the gun show line, the guns would probably refer to something like the organ of benevolence. Let me show you my head bumps. So like what what it, I mean, phrenologists, even at that time, people knew like if you get hit in the head with a baseball bat. Yeah. Bump forms on your head. Exactly. They think like, oh, like depending on where you got hit in the head, you're momentarily turned into a more benevolent person or a more aggressive person. That is Almost exactly what the defense argued in this case. Okay, hit it. Uh, so phrenology is now considered completely discredited. There's no evidence at all that these cranial organs had any validity, uh, and you can't accurately predict people's behavior by measuring bumps on their heads. But the defense in this case argued that Mitchell had suffered an injury to the skull when he was young, okay. uh, quote, whereby the portion of the brain called by phrenologists the organ of destructiveness was prematurely enlarged and a destructive disposition excited. Mm. <laughs> Man, if only it was that easy to, uh-huh. to, to make children into little monsters, right? right? Like you'd be able to very easily like create like an army of homicidal maniacs by just like 
whacking them on a certain part of their head. Well, that that's not actually completely off. And I want to get into that in a minute, because uh, so in this case, they observed a lump behind Mitchell's right ear and they said, look, you know, the organ of destructiveness is enlarged. Uh, sure. It, the crime was a result of this enlarged organ of destructiveness. The enlargement was due to circumstances beyond Mitchell's control. He just got hurt. Um, so he shouldn't be held responsible for the crime. Uh-huh. And the judge wrote, quote, where people do not speak from knowledge, we cannot suffer a mere theory to go as evidence to a jury. So okay. the, the judge actually pretty wisely in this case ruled. Against I imagine the admission. Like this, this like old main uh, judge, though. And he's yeah, like, it sounds like where a- people do not speak from knowledge. It's like in Pet Cemetery. Yeah, exactly. It's you don't like want to go down Randall. that road of phrenology. <laughs> That's a bad road of phrenology. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, those are a terrible main accent. I'm sorry. No, mine's just as equally bad, and I'm from New England. Uh, but th- this does raise an interesting question. Like, how do outsiders and lay people determine what is knowledge and what is mere theory? And how do judges do it? Uh, yeah. By the preferred nomenclature of today, I think most scientists would prefer to say mere hypothesis rather yeah. than mere theory. But either way, um, uh, neither judges determining admissibility nor jury members listening to an expert witness testify typically have exhaustive knowledge of these disciplines. So what do you do? Hmm. Yeah. But then again, I do think this case raises important issues that are still relevant today, because for one for one thing, courts today will take real evidence about, say, injuries to the brain or uh, illnesses that affect the brain into consideration when thinking about somebody's responsibility for a crime. What if you, you know, normal person, not a violent person, suddenly one day get the urge to go out and start beating people down with a folding chair? Sure. Yeah. And then they discover that you've got a tumor on your brain. It's Ric Flair disease. Uh, the, the, this tumor may well be changing your behavior in a way that it's kind of hard to hold you personally responsible for, right? Mm, I mean, that, that's, that's, certain, that's shaky, but yeah. Well, I mean, that's how a lot of the courts would look at it. And yeah. I, I'm sure you'd feel the same way if you were like, you'd be like, this isn't me. I don't know why I did that. That doesn't feel like a part of me at all. And then they discover, well, there's a tumor in your brain that's changing the way your brain works. Mm. Can you remove the tumor? Uh, well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Yeah. I mean, I guess like whether or not you're responsible, I, you're still responsible, but then it changes like what the, uh, punishment would be, right? Like, like you wouldn't necessarily send somebody like that to jail, but they would need to be isolated so that they're no longer doing this. If this oh, was actually sure, yeah, case, yeah. If this was actually, well, I mean, case. hopefully they could get treatment. Uh, yeah, another exactly. thing would be a brain injury. You've probably heard the story of Phineas. Phineas Gage. Gage. I was yeah. just about to bring up Phineas Gage. Yeah. we talk about him on the show all the time. Phineas Gage. He's this guy. What what year was that? Do you remember? Oh, I can't remember, but I I do remember that when I was in a uh, junior high school that our school had a dare program and they would uh, often talk to us about the repercussions of drinking and driving. Mm-hmm. And they gave us all T-shirts that had a picture of a skull with a metal rod shoved up through it. And it was to remind us about Phineas Gage and how his brain changed because of the rod. If you're not familiar with yeah. this incident, he was a railway worker. Yeah, working on a railroad and, uh, and there was some accident and explosion shot a metal rod through his head. Yeah. And it and changed his personality completely. Yeah. He lived. It didn't immediately kill him, but he was not the same man. Yeah. And this brain injury had altered something physical about the way his brain works. And he was no longer morally or in terms of character, the same person. Right. And so like in my instance with these t-shirts, 
shirts. Dare was trying to use this as a metaphor for like, this is what happens when you drink is mm-hmm. you're, you're no longer the same person. Subsequently, you shouldn't drive. Right. Uh, okay. But, but this is another way in that I think neuroscience may come into forensic science in the future because like the more we understand about neuroscience, the more we understand about what things, uh, physical changes in the brain can lead to certain behaviors with, with pretty reliable predictive power. You know, you, sure. you say like, Oh, we've discovered that most of the time you see this physical process in the brain, people start behaving in this way. Right. Uh, certainly, that, especially like when you're talking about depression and anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, do, do those things start, uh, changing our idea of how responsibility works mm. in a courtroom? Mm-hmm. Uh, so like if we say that, you know, somebody who Phineas Gage had a bar goes through his head or something, Somebody had a tumor in their brain and this directly seemed to lead to a change in their behavior that caused criminal activity or something like that. Yeah. Uh, In what what if uh, it's not an injury or an illness, but just some inborn condition? This is just how your brain was born. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated stuff. Again, wicked problems, right? Like, yeah, like it's not it's not even just as easy as like having the forensic science be perfect, because even then you get cases like what you're these hypotheticals that you're putting out. It's, yeah, it's very complicated to decide what's right and wrong. Yeah. And since we ran so long, we're going to have to call it right there. So here, here's where we're going to have to leave off the first half of this discussion. But to hear the rest, you can simply tune in again next time. And in the meantime, you can find us on social media, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr, where our handle is some variation on Blow the Mind. You know what kind of weirdos we are. You'll be able to tell if it's our account, I'm quite sure. And, of course, you can always catch All We Say and Do at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And if you'd like to email us to get in touch with ideas for future episodes or feedback on this one, you can reach us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 